Romans 12 from verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, as we studied uh, verses 1 and 2, we said the really rich uh, verses at the beginning of chapter 12, we saw that as Christians, our logical, our rational, reasonable response to God's mercies is to turn our bodies over to the Lord and ask the Lord to use us in every way that he can. Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And for that to happen, for us to be living sacrifices, two things have to happen. Uh, we have to stop being conformed to the world, which means being conscious of the, 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 the worldview, the secular worldview, uh, in order that we can resist it. And on the other side, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let the Word of God shape the way you think and not the culture around you. Now, the link between what Paul has said there in verses 1 and 2 and what we're looking at this morning uh, is that the mind is important in Christian discipleship. Our renewed mind, which is now capable of testing and approving God's commandments, now must be active in evaluating ourselves and our identity and our gifts We need to know who we are. We need to avoid uh, an inflated uh, conception of ourselves and our gifts if we are to be fruitful in serving God. Now, this is an extremely helpful passage. Obviously, just from reading it, it's a very practical passage. It's speaking about different avenues of service. But I want to say this as well. It's also, it's like a little... Uh, test case. It's like a, a laboratory. It's a classroom exercise in doing what is hinted at in verses 1 and 2. It gives us a chance to identify in two areas the way that the world, the secular world, looks at two issues and to contrast that with what the Bible has to say about two issues. In other words, uh, it's going to help us here in doing a little exercise in uh, identifying the kind of prevailing mindset that we've got to resist and the biblical worldview that we've got to adopt. And the two areas are in regard to self-image 
and diversity. See, they're very <laughs> modern words, aren't they? And they're right here uh, in these verses. Buzzwords. It's a great time of year also to be taking stock of ourselves and of what we do to serve God. Uh, to be thinking of what kind of ministry God has given to me. And there is very practical uh, help, practical counsel uh, in uh, this as we look at seven key areas of service. So if you've been uh, thinking on that uh, over the past few days, then listen in here because there's great help uh, to take stock of what we do uh, in the service of the family of God. So as we look at the passage together, uh, I want to contrast, first of all, uh, the worldly and the biblical view of self-image and then diversity. And then, thirdly, to look at how a proper understanding of both shape our service in Christ's church. And then, at the very end, we're going to close with some uh, practical ways by which we can identify the gifts that God has given to us for use in his service. So there are really four things that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. So, self-image, uh, the, the world's view and the biblical view. Paul opens asserting his authority as an apostle to direct the way that his readers regard themselves. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Paul's talking about self-image. How we think of ourselves, how we understand ourselves is vitally important. At the beginning of his, his great uh, work at uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin writes, Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So the knowledge of yourself is vitally important. Now, it is generally agreed that there are large numbers of people who, who do struggle uh, in this area, who have problems of low self-esteem, uh, crippling inferiority uh, feelings, and a lack of confidence. And the reasons behind that are, are complex and certainly beyond me, but they would include things like uh, the lack of love that they've experienced from parents, uh, parents who are separated or too busy to give them attention, uh, issues of abuse, prejudice, unemployment, uh, all of these things on their own or together can make people feel <coughs> worthless. However, the standard response to that is the popular uh, human potential movement which moves people in the opposite direction and it teaches that the way to overcome feelings of low self-esteem is to focus on what's apparently limitless potential for self-improvement that lies within everybody, so it is claimed. People are urged to express themselves, fulfill themselves, 
they have to assert themselves, think positively about themselves. And all of this goes back to the influence of a psychologist, Carl Rogers, who stressed the goodness of human nature and the need for unconditional self-regard and self-actualization. And that thinking, even though we've never heard of Carl Rogers, it has been profoundly influential on the way that people think. So that people think, generally speaking, that to, to love somebody is to unconditionally affirm them. And on the other hand, to be critical in any way of someone is sometimes to be regarded as guilty of hate speech. And so we have a culture of self-love, a hunger for affirmation. And along with that goes the idea that you have limitless potential. You know, you can do absolutely anything. There is nothing which is beyond your reach. And it's, it's very easy to, to get evidence. I just uh, went on uh, the internet and just at random came up with a whole lot of statements. Here's one of them. Uh, believe in yourself. You can achieve anything that you set your mind to. There are no limits out there. The only limits are those that you impose upon yourself. So children are told from a very early age that uh, there is nothing which is impossible for them to do. And that has disastrous outcomes for themselves and for those around them. And the Bible presents a very different picture uh, to that worldview of uh, unlimited uh, self love and affirmation, unlimited potential for actualizing yourself. The Bible's view is very different, and we have it here. By the grace of God, gifts given me, I say to everyone, if you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Now, sometimes Christians think that we're not to think of ourselves at all, that's not the case. We have to think of ourselves with sober judgment. And Paul exhorts us to do that using his apostolic authority. We are delivered from low self-esteem as Christians, not because some misguided person tells us that there is nothing that we can achieve and that we are absolutely affirmed and are good in ourselves. But the Christians delivered from low self-esteem because of the fact that God has set an immense value on uh, his or her life by giving his son Jesus to redeem us. The Christian can say with Paul, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No one who really understands that God has put that value on his life, can feel worthless. God has declared our worth on the cross. This is how much we are loved. But what's at issue uh, is the question of what I should do in church and in Christian ministry in the community. And Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You see, the Bible teaches us that the tendency we have is to pride. We shouldn't base our evaluation of ourselves on our feelings or on what other people tell us because 
feelings on the one hand could be unreliable and other people may base what they say to us on ungodly philosophies. (coughs) Instead, we're to think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed uh, to us. Professor Murray argues that the, the measure of faith that's spoken of here is that faith which is required for the exercise of any particular gift that God has given to us. No gift can be exercised, he says, without faith directed to God. And so a realistic judgment of the gifts that we're enabled by God to exercise is needed. And we're going to come at the end to to practical, realistic ways of assessing what uh, gift of faith God has given us for exercising ministries. So, first of all, Christians are not to fall into the trap of pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, so that we strive to enter into areas of ministry in which God has no desire that we serve which are not suited for us, in which we would uh, have uh, disastrous results. But on the other hand, they should not underestimate the gift so that that gift lies dormant. It works both ways. There's to be a realistic evaluation of our gift. Not to think too highly, but not to underestimate and let the gift lie dormant. So, two views of self-image. A worldly view and a biblical view. Diversity, very hot topic. Again, there is a way of conforming to the world that we are to avoid. The world, uh, the world view, the secular um, understanding of diversity is a, is a very particular, specific one. It identifies groups that are thought of as being underrepresented or groups that are victims of more powerful groups And diversity thinking insists that such groups should be equally represented in every sector of society. And so, for example, uh, council waste collectors could potentially come under pressure if they do not meet their quota of females of colour or people with a disability and so on, Uh, even if they have difficulty recruiting such people because they don't want the work or because they are physiologically unsuited for that particular work. So that's a secular view of diversity. But the biblical understanding of diversity is very different. It's based on the fact that all people are are equal in God's sight, but God gives different gifts to different people. And that means that people cannot simply just do everything, but they are called on to exercise their gift in the sphere ordained by God. And we rejoice in our diversity without squeezing it into uniformity. The great picture of the church is the body of Christ, where each part of the body has its unique and vital role to play But the key thing is that the body functions when each part plays its role without trying to be somebody else, without taking to themselves somebody else's role. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, our soul in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Each of us uh, has an interest uh, in the gifts that others have. We depend on them. Uh, We value those within the Fellowship of Hope Church who have specific interests, gifts, aptitudes, because we are blessed by them. But that doesn't mean to say that we are called to be like them or we should aspire to the gifts that they have. So diversity in the Christian worldview isn't a a dogma that imposes a contrived inclusivity. Doesn't mean that we're forbidden to differentiate doesn't mean that all gifts are transferable to others. It does mean that everyone is different and each one contributes to the good of the whole by being who they are and by serving in the way God has called them and gifted them to serve. So it gives a little bit of a taster as to how, as Christians, we're to use this uh, renewed mind. No, we shouldn't let our our intellects lie dormant. We're to be looking at the the way that society thinks on every conceivable subject and ask the question, is that in line with what the Bible says? Uh, Is this a a worldly view that is being presented to me and, and is in danger of taking over my thinking in this area? What should I think and how should I live in accordance with the Bible's view of things? Paul now uh, puts this into practice by showing how a realistic assessment of our abilities uh, takes place by people engaging in different ministries within the church. He mentions seven things, uh, some uh, which are uh, formal offices and others uh, are very commonly distributed throughout the church. First of all is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy in the apostolic era was the gift of inspired utterance. In the Old Testament, uh, prophets had a very prominent place in uh, the, the leadership of God's people. Less so in the apostolic era of the church. Uh, Apostles uh, had a prophetic gift. They they were instruments of revelation. But in addition, they had the role of being the the um, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ uh, and leaders over the church. But Prophets were given great honour. We're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets are to prophesy in accordance with their faith. In accordance with their faith. And that uh, that worked in two directions. It meant, obviously, that they weren't uh, to prophesy over and beyond the faith that God had given them to uh, reveal his will. They weren't to prophesy on their own authority and go beyond what God had given. 
That was clearly a dangerous thing. But on the other hand, neither were they to withhold what God had given to them, to draw back from speaking the truth that God had given. The next gift uh, is serving. Isn't it lovely to, to move from prophecy to serving? Serving is such a, you know, it, I hesitate to say it, it's almost a mundane gift. It's a gift that uh, is, is so clearly uh, widespread or should be widespread in the church. Many people have it. And when it's exercised fully, it, it lifts the church, it blesses the church. Let me give you an example. When, when we were in Staffan, uh, we had a crusaders group in the school. And for a few years, we had a canvas camp, um, canvas crusader camp. One of the church members uh, volunteered uh, her croft, and some leaders came up uh, from uh, Central Belt and the local group uh, and their friends had a great time under canvas for a few days. And each year, a retired man called John Hamilton came up with, with the leaders uh, from uh, down south. And he was a widower uh, who had put himself at the service of the leaders. He had a very defined role. Uh, he had purchased uh, one of these camper vans, really for the, the, the specific uh, purpose of transporting uh, the, the tents and the, the heavy materials that were needed. Uh, John would arrive before the rest and he would set up the tents. It was really his thing. He was a real uh, advocate of canvas camping and he bemoaned the fact that uh, uh, so many church camps these days were held in, in buildings and not under canvas. But he was there before everybody else. He had the tents up. They were well secured and that was his job. Uh, he didn't get involved with the games. He didn't do any teaching. But John saw to it that the tents were put up. And for the rest of the time, uh, he was in the background. He served. Uh, and he made such a difference. If it's teaching, let him teach. Uh, teaching uh, is a gift that involves imparting Biblical knowledge, explaining what the Bible is saying. And worldwide, it's a seriously needed gift. In those areas where the church is growing rapidly, uh, Bible teachers are needed uh, uh, very much in order that the people of God might be instructed. Without teachers, the church uh, becomes superficial uh, new Christians are left to their own devices and uh, don't become more than spiritual babies. Uh, in the church, we have the office of teaching elder, uh, but others too uh, have this gift and can exercise it in an informal way, just as Priscilla and Aquila uh, taught Apollos in their home so that he could be a blessing in the church. So we have, in, in our own fellowship, we have those who teach uh, youth, and young people, and there are those of you who teach the children uh, in your own homes to, to know and to love the Lord. If you've been given the gift of teaching, then use it. Explain the message of salvation to others more clearly. If it is encouraging, let him 
encouraged. What a wonderful spiritual gift encouragement is. Uh, we think, I think, uh, of Barnabas, uh, whose name meant son of encouragement, and how he was always such a, a positive influence in the church. We earnestly crave encouragers in the fellowship. You know what encouragers are like? They're like uh, three-in-one oil, or WD-40. They enable everything to, to move along more smoothly. They take the friction out of situations. They lift people. People serve more eagerly when there are encouragers around. People who uh, are willing to, to say something which is positive, something which draws attention to Jesus, something which uh, puts energy uh, into those who are seeking to serve him. Then there's the gift of contributing to the needs of others. And those are to do that generously, contributing to the needs of others. came across uh, in the course of uh, the uh, Karen uh, ministry, a woman called Helen Miller. And uh, she helps the needs of others by assembling Stitchcraft, which uh, Karen refugee women uh, produce, and assembling the Stitchcraft into cards. She told me once that the first time that she went to Burma and Thailand, it was part of a church group, and at the time she was off work with a form of depression, and her morale was rock bottom. She nearly pulled out because she didn't feel that she had anything to contribute to the trip. She went. And by God's grace, she made herself available. And she says that her life has been transformed simply by being willing to go and to do what she could. And she now contributes in an ongoing way to the welfare of 35 needy Karen households. If it is leadership, uh, verse 8, let him govern diligently. Now, clearly, uh, there are fewer people who have the gift of leadership. Uh, but if we have it, we are to use it diligently. Uh, literally, it means standing before people. Uh, so that can be what I'm doing now. It could be leading a home group. It could be leading the prayer meeting. And we're to do that diligently. We're not to wing it. We're to be well prepared. We're to do it uh, in a way that honours God. And then, uh, finally... There's mercy. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Isn't that interesting? Uh, to do it cheerfully. Showing mercy cheerfully. The gift of seeing needs and situations, practically responding to them. If God has given you that gift that you see a need in any situation and can visualize the means of meeting that need, then use that gift and use it cheerfully. Use the gift and use it cheerfully. A uh, couple more uh, Karen illustrations are uh, here on meeting needs. One occasion I met uh, in the refugee camp two very uh, jolly uh, Germans. These two jolly Germans were out uh, with what they called a mobile clinic. Uh, the, the problem was that lots of uh, internally displaced Karens in what was then a militarised zone... Uh, had been injured, some of them because of landmines, other because of uh, rocket attacks in the village. And 
folks who wanted to help and set up a hospital found that they, uh, they couldn't do that because they, the, the Burmese military were pushing uh, all the time. They were putting villages uh, on flames and so any medical help uh, was soon destroyed. So they, it needed to be assistance that was fleet of foot. The clinics needed to be mobile. And uh, there were two men. One of them was actually a doctor. The other one was an air traffic controller, retired. And he said to me, in Germany, uh, when you reach the age of 50, they say your eyesight is too bad to be an air traffic controller. So what do you do? Do you sit at the fire drinking tea? Uh, no. Uh, so much better to come up, uh, to come to Burma and to operate a mobile clinic. Uh, that was meeting needs in an imaginative way and doing it uh, with cheerfulness. The other example that came to mind uh, was the example of a couple of quite genteel English ladies I met once in Bangkok and they were staying in the Christian guest house there and they had identified a need uh, in terms of Karen, people who had been driven out of Burma and were in Thailand but were there illegally and the police had simply swept them off the streets and they'd ended up in prison. And these ladies had visited the prisoner, which is what Christians had exhorted to do. They had taken up literally, they were visiting prisoners. And they had identified needs. And they were doing two things. They were bringing the prisoners uh, oranges and underpants. <laughs> the oranges were uh, meeting the need of vitamin C, and the underpants were meeting the need of dignity. And they were doing it cheerfully as unto the Lord. If your gift is giving mercy, do it cheerfully. It's very practical, isn't it? You know, you can give and you can help somebody in a way that makes them feel bad. You know, you can patronise people. And the, the scripture is telling us here that if we give cheerfully, it makes it easier for the person who's the recipient to receive what is given. So, the bottom line in all of this is have a clear headed look at yourself. On the one hand, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't waste your time dreaming about influential uh, positions that you were never meant to fill. Have a realistic assessment of your gifts and calling and learn to be content. Try to discern God's providence in setting you where you are with your gifts and personality. So that's the one on the one side. And on the other, use your gift. Use your gift. Recognize what gift you have and put it into practice, no matter how humble it is. Now, it should be obvious that we can never <coughs> recognize a gift unless we are willing to try it out. You'll never know, for example, if you have a gift of writing unless you try your hand at writing. Use your gift. Don't let it lie dormant because you lack confidence or because you think doing nothing is a sign of humility. And then listen to mature Christians who comment on your usefulness in certain situations. We recognize spiritual gifts when we use them, when we have opportunity. 
if you have a gift of mercy, giving mercy, showing mercy, you will enjoy it and you will be able to do it cheerfully. And it's true not only of mercy, but across the board, uh, using your gift, your spiritual gift, is a fulfilling thing. You enjoy doing it. That's why it's called a grace. You're graced to do something. It's not a hard, painful thing to do it. It's something in which you delight, something which delights God, who has given you the gift in order to see it used. You can recognize your gift too by the fact that God blesses it, makes it fruitful. People will be blessed because you are exercising the gift that God has given you. In the sphere of ministry, God has ordained for you. Let us ask God uh, to make us fruitful for him in 2020. Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And not to let our gift lie dormant, but to use it in his service. Amen. May God receive all the praise and glory.